Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 16. We're going to be, uh, we're going to be reading through a lot of passages here today. So um, today is going to be a little bit different than kind of what we typically will do as far as teaching on Sunday morning. Um, we will just kind of read through a large passage of this, and it's uh, written in like a narrative. So uh, the best thing that I would encourage you to do is to just to listen to it, think about it, uh, process it. I'll make some statements on uh, the passages as I go, and then I will finish with just a few takeaways, a few things to think about and consider. And that's kind of the game plan for this morning. Uh, I believe God will speak to us, speak through us. So I'm going to pray first. Um, the title of this morning's message that I was kind of thinking about, how would I summarize or describe today? And uh, I'm going to actually rip off a title off of Eugene Peterson, a book that he had written called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And that's kind of what I see happening within this uh, passage, um, is it's just a long obedience in the same direction. That's what a disciple is. That's what a follower of Jesus is. That's what, uh, if you want another phrase for it, that's what an apprentice of Jesus is. It's someone that lives a long obedience in the same direction, not just periodic, I gave my life to Jesus back when I was 14, and I completely fell by the wayside. It's not a disciple. That's someone that made a decision. There's a difference. Um, but a disciple is one that just says, I keep going back to the very core things that are most central to my life, most central to the universe, uh, most central to the cosmos, which is God, the creator God, who, who loves me, who gave himself for me. That's what we see playing out over and over again in the, in the life of um, the book of Acts, and particularly the character that we'll be looking at here today is uh, the Apostle Paul. So let me pray, and uh, we'll begin to just jump right in, take a look at three major movements, three major uh, paragraphs, and three major movements, as you'll kind of see, I'll show you a map as soon as I'm done praying to kind of give you a little bit of uh, uh, orientation as to uh, where we're at, this actually happened, it was a historical uh, actual event that took place, and we'll just uh, look at that, and let me pray, and we'll jump in. So, God, thank you again for the opportunity to just see your servants uh, from ages past, God, that were faithful to you, that live their lives in such a way as to be a part of what you're up to in this world, which is to proclaim the gospel, which is to live the gospel, to let people know of who you are um, by their actions, by their words. Uh, all by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. God, thank you that we can even just look at our own church here today and just see uh, a, a resemblance to the early church, how people are just going forth and proclaiming and living the gospel in profound ways. So, God, we ask you this morning that you would just move in our hearts, open our minds, our thoughts, our affections to you. Help me to be uh, able to communicate clearly uh, what your word has to say. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, um, I want to show you a map real fast before we jump right in, and I'll uh, kind of give you a little bit of an orientation. So the big circle right there, that's kind of the main area that we're going to be focusing on here this morning. We'll look at three major paragraphs, like I mentioned. Uh, each of those paragraphs represents another city. So if you want to look at them real quickly on the map, or hopefully you can see them. Uh, it's, uh, we'll look at Philippi, Thessalonica, uh, or, and, and then Berea. Those are three major cities, three major movements, three paragraphs that we'll be reading through and just kind of taking a look at and making some observations as we kind of read through this. And then, uh, like I said, I'll close with some uh, just final takeaways. So let's jump into the story. Uh, it's uh, chapter uh, 16, verse 35. We'll begin. Um, if you were with us last week, you remember that um, Paul, uh, along with his companions, they were thrown in a prison uh, for preaching the gospel. And not just simply preaching the gospel, but the gospel in the context where Paul was at actually was disruptive to the uh, social, economic, 
situation in that city, which meant that as the gospel went out, it actually disrupted society and it disrupted the economy. So you might be wondering how in the world that happened. Um, I would just say either go back and listen to last week's message or read, just, just read the passage. Uh, it's pretty clear that the fact is, is that as the gospel was going out, it was uh, speaking truth, it was setting people free that were bound by uh, religious idolatry and economic idolatry and political idolatry or poli- uh, power. Um, but what we see is that the gospel was making these uh, massive inroads and change was happening. Um, that should be expected as the gospel goes into people's lives and into societies and into uh, workplaces and into neighborhoods and into homes. Um, there will be transition. Change will happen. Change will take place. The gospel will begin to bring life, which means that any parts that were dead or part of deadness um, end up coming back to life or remaining dead if they are inconsistent with the heart and the ways of God. And so we see that taking place with Paul. Now, Paul got thrown in prison. He gets released. And uh, this is where we pick up the story. So verse 35 says this, but when it was day, the magistrates, these are the leaders of the city, they sent the police uh, saying, let those men go. So again, remember Paul was in prison uh, along with Silas. Uh, Then it says in verse 36, and then the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, hey, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Now, this is kind of a crazy response from Apostle Paul because I think for most of us, if this was you and I, we'd be like, yes, we're free to go, but not Paul. Paul's response is actually pretty surprising, but listen to how Paul responds in verse 37. But Paul then said to them, they've beaten us publicly. We are uncondemned men who are Roman citizens. That's the key phrase, Roman citizens, right? If you were reading this in hypertext, that word uh, Roman citizen would be blue and underscored, meaning uh, it would lead you to another bigger idea or concept, not necessarily in scripture, but within Roman society and culture at large, which means that if you're a Roman citizen, there are actually laws in place that would uh, prohibit a Roman citizen from being publicly scourged the way Paul was. And so uh, the question that a lot of scholars and theologians and Bible teachers throughout the ages have asked, then why didn't Paul like wave his Roman citizenship card when he was being uh, brutalized and attacked. And uh, who knows? Nobody really knows. And in fact, uh, Luke does not tell us, he's the narrator of the story, he's not telling us why that didn't happen. Perhaps Paul did. But again, remember, if you uh, look back at the early part of the story, it was mob rule. Like, people were yelling, it was frantic, it was chaos. Um, So perhaps Paul did, but no one heard Paul. And so this is kind of the Romans' uh, way of kind of slapping your hand and saying, just don't do it again. And now Paul was thrown into prison, and uh, this earthquake happens, releases Paul. And so they set Paul free. And this is Paul's response again. He says, but Paul said to them, uh, they've beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And they now want to throw us out secretly? No. Let them come in themselves and take us out. Can you imagine, like, the boldness of Paul? Like, imagine that idea just like, like, if something like that were to happen to you and you're in Paul's place and you're like, no, they did something to us as public, I demand a public apology. All right, that's what's going on here. Like, Paul is somehow exercising or flexing his Roman citizenry, citizenship, citizen rights, if you want to think of it that way. Um, and again, the question a lot of scholars and theologians have pondered and wondered why. Why is Paul, why is Paul doing this? Because on the one hand, Paul seems to be subject to whatever the Roman dignitaries are throwing at him, if that means 
punishment, if that means, you know, uh, flexing of the Roman uh, Pax Romana, which is Rome's peace, oftentimes by way of the form of violence. But in this case, Paul is, uh, he's fighting back. He's resisting. He's using his rights. And again, there's all sorts of speculation and questions as to how does this play out in modern society? Um, how do we as followers of Jesus in a modern uh, society that allows us to have a voice, to vote, to flex our might, to even protest uh, in, in ways that are peaceful. How do we do this? And, and I think that's one of those things that you, you always have to kind of work through and think about and process. Um, there's lots of uh, ways to consider this and think about this. But in this context, Paul is basically making a demand, saying, I demand some level of public uh, acknowledgement as to how I was uh, mistreated. It says, then the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they had heard that, they had, uh, that, that Paul was a Roman citizen that they had beaten him. Verse 39 says, and then they came and they apologized to them, and then they took them out and they asked them to leave the city. So they, that's Paul, uh, they went out of the prison and they visited Lydia, and they, and they had seen the brothers and they encouraged them, and then they had departed. So um, one of the best uh, responses, I think, as to considering why did Paul flex his um, political clout in this context, meaning uh, the idea of, of policy. Paul was just sort of adapting Roman policy and saying, I'm going to allow that to cover me in this context. Um, one scholar kind of had written this up, and I, I tend to agree with it, that, that Paul was not necessarily doing this because he was angry or he was vengeful or Paul was looking to kind of get back. This, isn't, this was not Paul playing kind of a tit-for-tat type of a game. This is Paul probably, for the most part, thinking about the legacy of Christianity in that city. Because Paul knew that as a church planter, Paul typically did not stay in a city for a very long time. So again, this is Paul's unique uh, call. Paul would go into a city, spend a few uh, weeks or days or months, uh, in some cases uh, a couple years in a particular spot. He would plant the church and he would move on. That's, that's different than like what I did here in St. Louis. I, I moved here. With my, with my wife, I didn't have a family then, with my wife uh, almost 23, almost 24 years ago, uh, we were married for two whole whopping years. We had lots of wisdom under our belt, um, kidding, and, uh, and, and we planted a church and we stayed. We, we stayed, partly because that's what we felt God was calling us to do. We did not feel a responsibility or need to leave here, to go to another city, to keep going up the coast. Uh, we just, we, it was different than Paul. So our call was, was different than, than Paul the Apostle's. Your call to follow Jesus is going to look different than, than Paul's and than myself. Uh, you've got to think about and pray through what, is, what does your call look like. Again, for some of you, it's like to go to Amazon, to use what type of creativity and knowledge and wisdom that you have uh, accumulated to go be a blessing, or uh, to go to another country, to use whatever information or knowledge you've gained to maybe go be a missionary on staff with crew. Um, You've got to think about that and pray through how has God called you. Um, at the end of the day, I, I love to always think about it this way. All of us, no matter who you are, whether or not you go into what we would call vocational ministry, meaning you get a paycheck from a church or from a mission organization like Crew, uh, or you work for Amazon and your paycheck has the name of uh, you know, one of the top billionaires uh, on, on it. Um, regardless of where you go, we always like to encourage you to think about yourself as a missionary wherever you go. You, you take what God has given you. The, the life that God has breathed into you by way of the Holy Spirit, and you demonstrate by way of your words, what you speak, and your deeds, by how you act and what you do, that Christ is alive. 
He's a, he's a risen king. He's a victorious king. He gives life. And uh, so that's what we see that Paul was doing. So in this context, uh, we see, for whatever reason, again, like I said, this uh, commentator that I read uh, basically said that Paul was thinking about the future of the church here. And so if Paul perhaps were to, uh, uh, Paul saw this as an opportunity to somehow maybe create a, a better name, perhaps, or better, le- better legacy for the future of this brand new church. Now, at this point, Paul goes back to this brand new church, which for the most part, uh, as far as we know, consisted of a slave girl, right, uh, who had a demon cast out of her, uh, a scout by the name of Lydia, who was a very well-known, wealthy, probably a beautiful gal that had beautiful clientele. Uh, she owned, like I mentioned last week, a very, very expensive boutique. And uh, this is the gal, and she it says that her household was a part of this. And then the other guy was a Roman guard. And it says that his household uh, was all baptized in belief. So at this point right now, the church that Paul was going back to was probably between, I don't know, who knows, between eight to maybe 20 people. So that, that was a church that Paul had gone to. And Paul realized that he wanted to see this church continue to grow and to prosper and to do well within the context of what it, where it was at. So the next city that we move on to is uh, uh, Thessalonica in verse 1 of chapter 17, moving along. It says this, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So, so far... What does this tell us about the city of Thessalonica, if Paul's going to go to a synagogue? Class, what does it tell us about the society of Thessalonica? Large Jewish population or small Jewish population? Large, very large, probably a very significant Jewish population. Uh, Paul typically would go to uh, large uh, cities with large Jewish population, um, though it wasn't exclusively so, but Paul did that because Paul was trained as a religious leader within Judaism. He was a Pharisee. As he describes himself as a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Paul was like high echelon of Phariseeism. Uh, he was the elite of the elite. He was a Yoda of Yodas, right? He was the guy that knew how to uh, work within that system of Judaism. And so Paul uh, held on to that level of Judaism, even while he traveled, and, uh, which meant that, you know, one, according to one uh, Bible teacher I was reading, that pro- Paul, when he would walk into one of these cities, he was probably noticed as a Pharisee or as a guy that was given the opportunity to teach because Paul dressed as a Pharisee. Now, I don't know how you think about when you think about Paul, but if you think about Paul, think about Paul in the context of dressing up in traditional Jewish uh, garments. I, I don't know if they had the tassels on it, if Paul had like the long dreadlocks. We don't really know because a lot of times the culture had changed throughout the years. In fact, you can go into... Uh, large Jewish populations today, and uh, a lot of different Jews in those areas wear different hats, they wear different size tassels, they wear different styles, period. Um, so, but the fact is, Paul probably dressed in the, uh, the clothing that would have indicated to anybody that rep- recognized him or seen him that, oh, he must be a religious leader of Judaism. And so therefore, when Paul would walk into an area and there was a large synagogue or a large Jewish population, uh, they would gladly welcome him and come in to begin to speak. And that's what, that's what Paul did. So he kind of capitalized on that as sort of uh, his, his uh, MO. And so what we see here in verse 2, says that when Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, so how many weeks is that? Three Sabbath days. Three weeks. You guys are so good. Three weeks. Three weeks. On three Sabbath days, uh, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, um, explaining to them, and proving that it was necessary that 
the Christ is to suffer, is to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And the word Christ, um, some of your translations might be uh, translated as uh, king. And I think that's a perfectly reasonable translation. In fact, um, we don't typically use the word Christ in our modern Gentile terminologies or language, vocabulary. Um, I think a very adequate way of describing it would be the word king, that Christ is the king. Uh, It comes from an ancient Hebrew word, which basically uh, is indicative of an anointing, being an an anointed one through the word Messiah or Mashiach or Christos from the Greek comes from. It's the idea of a king. So when a king would be brought into a place of prominence or recognized within a place of power, uh, they would uh, crack open the, uh, the oil, the sacred oil, and they would dump the oil on him as a way of saying, this man is anointed or appointed by God for a very specific and unique task. And uh, the, the task of a king was extremely important back in that day, as in really any day. And the purpose of a king was to unite, was to bring order where there was chaos and to bring uh, a sense of peace where there was nothing but war or uh, violence. And that was the job of the king. And oftentimes, the kings did not operate in ways that were consistent with God. So rather than uh, bringing in peace instead of violence, they bring in more violence. And they bring in more sin. And they act according to the ways of Babylon or Egypt or all these other empires of the world, rather than acting according to ways that are like uh, the kingdom of God. And so what Paul is saying is that, look, you Jews, all of you guys, are hoping and looking for uh, a king to come. But according to scriptures, now Paul was, we're not told what Paul's sermon consisted of, but a lot of scholars would agree that it's probably a reference to Isaiah 53. Paul would have been kind of pulling out of the, out of the uh, ancient Old Testament writings all the traditional passages that would represent uh, this theme of what we would call a suffering servant or suffering Messiah. Now that was uh, in some ways inconsistent in the mindset of a lot of Jewish thinkers because when they thought about a king, when they hoped for a king, their idea of a king was a conquering king. Their idea was a, of a king was a king that was something along the lines of like a Caesar who had a sword in hand and was ready to crush his enemies or to destroy his enemies or to shed blood for the sake of the greatness and the prominence of Israel, the nation. Um, their theme literally was, let's make Israel great again. Literally. I mean, and they looked for a king that would somehow do that. But in their mindset, I'm not, not making political fun. I'm just simply making statements of fact. They were, for the most part, looking for a king that would make Israel this this powerhouse of a nation as it once was. And their idea of a king that would take them forward into that advanced dream was one that would crush their enemies. And so the, the concept that Paul is saying here, he's reasoning with them. He's saying, look, your idea of a Messiah is actually radically different than, the, uh, than what the prophets have given to us. The prophets have communicated to us that the, that the Messiah would actually suffer. Now, again, you got to think of it this way. The concept of a suffering king, taking that concept even further to a, a, a crucified king, was shocking. In some ways, it would even be described as scandalous. Uh, the idea of uh, crucifixion was a way of death, um, not just simply to put someone to death, but it was a way of, uh, it, was, it was a death that was reserved for Rome's greatest uh, uh, enemies. And it was a death of humiliation. It was a death of complete uh, destruction and exile and banishment and humiliation. And so to think about a Messiah or your king as being uh, thrown into this context of, uh, such public humiliation, those are inconsistent terms. 
And so what Paul is saying is that he's reasoning with them. He's taking scripture and opening it to them and unpacking it to them, uh, causing them to realize the Holy Spirit was opening their hearts and causing them to realize that maybe there was something about the Messiah we had missed. That then Paul kind of connects all the dots. He says, look, this Messiah that scripture speaks of, that Isaiah prophesied of, that some of these Old Testament uh, passages point to, though he would die and though he would suffer, that this Messiah, Paul then uh, gives the, the, the reveal. He says, this Messiah is Yeshua, Jesus, um, which would perhaps show some level that the idea of Jesus dying, rising again, was beginning to spread, beginning to circulate throughout the Roman Empire. So Paul makes this statement to them that uh, he's explaining to them and proving them that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead, saying that this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, he alone is the king or the Christ. Verse 4 says, And some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a many great amount of uh, devout Greeks and a few who were of the leading women, which means, uh, again, powerful uh, women within that culture and society that has some level of clout and ability and notoriety. Um, so what we see here is a movement beginning to happen, that Paul uh, was going around creating or being a part of uh, the work of God to create these small uh, communities of Jesus people, Jesus followers. Verse 5, it says, And then the Jews were jealous, taking some wicked men of the rabble, and they formed a mob and in the city, and they set the city in an uproar. And they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Now, um, Luke writes as if we already know who Jason is. Now, obviously, we, we don't really know who Jason is. The very first time the name Jason appears in the text, uh, which would be somewhat indicative of the fact that um, to whomever Luke was sending this letter, they would have known who this guy Jason was, but he assumes that we, we know it. So Jason probably was just some guy in this particular city that had shown great favor to the early church, maybe he was wealthy, had a big house, and he brought people in there, and we're told that he housed these people. Um, and it says, then the Roman authorities discover this, they find this out. Verse 6, it says, when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities saying or shouting, these men, they have turned the world upside down, they've also come here, verse 7, and then Jason received them, and they were all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king. This is, this is the accusation that was leveled against them. These guys are going around proclaiming. This is their message, the central message. Now, on one hand, it's not entirely accurate, because the way that they're interpreting this is that they're basically saying that the king they're proclaiming is uh, seeking to overthrow and overtake, perhaps in their mindset, by way of violence, uh, Caesar. That's not at all what the early Christians were advocating for, at all. Quite the opposite. They were saying, love our enemies. Because that's what Jesus did to us. Uh, was Jesus king? Was that the central message of the early uh, church? Absolutely, unequivocally, yes, that was the central message of the early church. That yes, Jesus is king. But, this is where it gets really nuanced. Jesus is a king, was a king, was proclaimed as king, is proclaimed as king, but in a different order of kingship. Meaning, the way that people have come to think about kings, in fact, if you want to follow this throughout the whole scripture, there is a, uh, a line that would link kingship, oftentimes in a secular sense, all the way back to, say, Pharaoh, who kind of becomes this, uh, this quintessential example, a prototype of what kings, uh, according to the order of the flesh, look like. Meaning, they exalt themselves. They become powerful. They take advantage of other people. 
in order to place themselves forward. In other words, it sounds a heck of a lot like American modern society, a bunch of individuals that act like kings. Meaning, the way that Jesus reigns is radically different than any other king. He's a king that doesn't come to shed the blood of his enemies, but to have his blood shed by his enemies. It's literally an upside-down kingdom. This is a king that, that comes to serve his enemies, to be crushed by his enemies, to be crushed for his enemies. This is the message that was being proclaimed. And again, uh, there was a caricature that was going around about this that was somehow uh, suspicious that these guys were basically creating sort of a coup, uh, mutiny within the Roman government, and that's not at all what was happening. But nonetheless, when mob rule gets an idea in their mind, uh, they're looking for a scapegoat. They're looking for somebody to crush, to kill, to accuse, to destroy. It's the way we typically work as human beings, right? So before you're too quick to judge them, look at other people in your life that we are quick to find as a scapegoat and attack and kill and spill their blood. This is what was happening back then. It's all part of the same cycle of sin and brokenness and offense that has sought to snuff out or destroy or crush or cripple the image of God and our fellow neighbor that God has come to restore and to bring healing to. So what we see is these guys uh, took, took Jason and whoever uh, the other people that are part of his house out, and they uh, placed this accusation against them. Verse 8 says, And the people of the city and the authorities, uh, they were disturbed, and then they had heard these things. And then uh, verse 9 says, And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. So what's going on here? You're like, that sounds like bribery. Yes, that's exactly what's going on here. Bribery. Money always works, right? So, so somehow, who knows, I mean, they gave, they, either these guys leveraged money. They're like, look, we want money and we'll be quiet. Give us you know, $10,000 and we'll, we'll go away quietly. Whatever the case is, they, that, that's what happened. It seems what happened. Um, not that these guys, you know, Jason and his crew were like, hey, you guys uh, drop a $10,000 bill on the ground. Like, oh, what's that? You guys want that? You know, I have no idea how this all worked out. But the fact <laughs> of the matter is, is that there's some sort of like, crazy situation going on here that these guys walk away and they're like, all right, we didn't see anything. We did not hear anything. You guys are good to go. Thessalonica. Uh, Next and last is Berea. We'll go through this quick. Verse 10, it says this, and the brothers then immediately they sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea and when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Again, typical uh, MO. Verse 11, it says, now the Jews who are more noble than uh, those in Thessalonica they received word with all eagerness or readiness, according to some translations. They were examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So what scriptures were they examining? What would have been the Old Testament. There was no New Testament in circulation at this time. So what's happening here? So Paul is going there talking to them, probably a very similar message that Paul is bringing to every other place. And uh, these guys are searching the scriptures. They obviously had a copy of uh, the Torah or the sacred writings. And so therefore, uh, they were diligently searching, seeking, thinking, praying through and wanting to make certain that what Paul was advocating or communicating was actually uh, some level of consistency with what the prophets and the writings and the poets uh, had described. And so obviously they, they came to their conclusions that, that yes, what Paul is saying is consistent with Scripture. And so uh, it goes on to say in verse 12, it says, and many, of those, uh, many of them had believed, and with not a few Greek women of high standing as well, uh, as, well as, as well as uh, men. Uh, And when the Jews of Thessalonica heard or learned that the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the the crowds, verse 14. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off 
on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy, they remained there. Those who conducted Paul uh, brought him as far as Athens, which we'll get into next week. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, as soon as possible, they departed. So, so that's, that's the story that we see kind of playing forth. Uh, again, like I said, it's this missionary journey. Paul's going around from place to place. Um, so I want to finish with a couple quick uh, concluding thoughts. Um, number one is that Paul had this commitment to just simply proclaiming a, a very simple message. Paul's message was very simple. Now, um, it begins, the very core, the very uh, kernel of Paul's entire theological framework or construct is, is really just simply this message that the Messiah will suffer, Messiah has suffered, Messiah has died, he was buried, and that he was risen again, and that this Messiah is Jesus, Yeshua. Um, in other words, Christ is the crucified king. Jesus is Lord, as we looked at last week specifically. Jesus is Lord. And we look more intently at the idea, like, what does it mean to proclaim, to live out, to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord? Um, you guys like Babylonian B? Anybody read Babylonian B? Did anybody not read Babylonian B? You, you need to change the structure of your life and incorporate Babylonian B. I mean, read your Bible first, but then Babylonian B. Um, they had this great one this past week. It said, I, I think it was like, I don't know, a man accepts Jesus as his personal butler. It's, it's, okay, some of you are like, where is he going with this? It's satire, okay? It's like the Christian onion. So, so just take a deep breath. You're like, that's heresy. I, I get it. It is heresy, yes. But that's, the idea is that oftentimes, that's how Americans tend to think of Jesus. He's like my personal butler. I tell him to shine my shoes, and he shines my shoes. I tell him to make sure everything is going well and nice and tidy in my life, and he does. And if for some reason he drops the ball... If for some reason he fails, if for some reason he doesn't give me what I've asked him to do, I hold the right, I reserve the opportunity to shake my fist at him. Do you understand that that is radically different, inconsistent with the affirmation, with what the New Testament was proclaiming, that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is sovereign. He's not our butler. He doesn't come when we snap our fingers. Yes, there's an element to which Christ came to this world and served us. His serving of us included his suffering and his death for us to die in our stead, to die in our place, taking our sin, our offenses, our brokenness, our just destruction upon himself. And thus, he himself absorbed it in his body so that sin was judged in Christ on the cross. But the reality is, Paul went around proclaiming this. Now, even though this is a simple message, it is so complex and so massive in terms of its implications. It's, uh, it's huge in terms of unpacking this. And Paul spends the rest of the New Testament unpacking this, trying to understand this and uh, the implications of, okay, if Christ is indeed Lord, what does that mean? What does that mean for how I think about my business or how I think about my future how I think about even my past and my shame and my guilt and my sin, or how I think about my sexuality and how I think about my money and how I think about how I spend my money and how I think about the concept of this crazy thing that, for the most part, is up for grabs in modern society, this thing called the church. Because, you know, it's common to say in today's world, like, I love, I love Jesus. Jesus is cool. The church is frustrating. I'll take it or leave it. Like, okay, if Jesus is indeed Lord... How we think and see everything 
is, is it's, a, it's filtered by this reality. It's, we see everything through this lens that Christ is Lord. This is Paul's message. It's very simple, but radically, radically comprehensive in so many ways that the rest of the New Testament will take the rest of your life to unpack this and understand this and ask those questions and wrestle through the implications of this. Nobody gets this the moment they say, yes, I believe. It takes the rest of your life to figure this out, to understand it, to unpack it, to live it. And the power of the Holy Spirit to help you to overcome all these things, uh, to live in a way that's consistent with this message, this claim uh, that is to be communicated alongside of the early church and 2,000 years of church history to say that Jesus is Lord. Finally, uh, Paul's commitment to God's mission. And there's uh, two things I see with regard to this. One, we see Paul going around forming and establishing these outposts of heaven. We call these churches. Have you ever thought about this? Like, that's what a church is. It's an outpost of heaven. It's not just a place you go and hang out and you have to endure a long-winded pastor talk for 45 minutes to an hour, God forbid. <laughs> or have to listen to music, whether it's good or horrible, based upon your preference, whatever, or have to sit next to people that you don't really like and act as if you do and put a smile on your face. And pretend. Look, the fact of the matter is there are all sorts of institutions and flavors and ideas and concepts and uh, methods by which people have done church. The bottom line is this. Uh, it's easy to get so caught up in the, the flavors of church that we fail to see the big, lofty reality of what a church is. A church is an outpost of heaven. It's a place where God resides. It's a place where God comes and unites and gathers and trains and instructs and meets with and transforms and opens the hearts of people that were once shut and closed and hardened and transforms the lives that were once so far distorted and broken in terms of the representation of the image of God. It's a place where God heals and transforms and saves. It's the church is God's thing. It's God's plan, God's purpose. And my encouragement to you is that, for example, if you're somebody that has been offended or hurt or wounded or broken or maybe even utterly destroyed by a church, the fact is, is you're probably more so destroyed by people in the church. In the church. Uh, but if that's the case, I get it. It's easy to be gun shy, to open up. I understand that. But the fact is, my encouragement for you is to think about, to pray through, ask God. If that means you take a time to just break away and to pray and to gather with a smaller group of people so that your heart would be healed and mended from its deep wounds. At some point, spend time asking God, God, what is your vision? How do you see the church? Where is your love for it? What have you done for the church? And then begin to ask God to give you a new heart to see things from a different light. I get it. The church is filled with broken, messed up, ruined, hurtful people. And all of us, to some degree, we have contributed to that. But it's God's thing. Paul was going around planting, creating these outposts of heaven. And some of these outposts of heaven, for example, within Philippi, included a slave girl, as we saw a couple weeks ago, a slave girl, uh, a, a wealthy rich woman, and a Roman guard. That's crazy. These social economic constructs had nothing to do with each other in the ancient Roman world. But in the church, they're all gathered together in someone's living room and breaking bread and eating food and singing songs to Jesus. That social barriers, social constructs that were saying, no, 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 slave girls that have no status in society, you're off at the side. But in church, it was like, no, we're all one. Come gather, come be a part of what God is up to. So Paul's going around 
creating these outposts. Secondly, we see that Paul was making disciples, and I'll finish with this thought, is that Paul had this growing company of people that he's bringing. So we read about a guy by the name of Timothy and Silas, and who are these people? Uh, these were just people that Paul was picking up along the way, and he was training them, teaching them. These people were watching the sum total of everything that Paul went through, everything that Paul endured, every hardship, every trouble, every uh, it, it, uh, undignified thing that Paul had to endure. These guys were watching Paul every step of the way to understand what a long obedience in the same direction looks like. Question, who are those people in your life that you are looking at and saying, I follow them as I follow Jesus? And you're not following, you don't know us, you should never follow a person, of course, we know that, but there are some people in our lives that love Jesus and have committed their lives and their hearts and their ways and their finances and their money and their sexuality and their marriage and their family and all these other things to the ways of Jesus and we need those people as role models to look up to. The second question, uh, layer below that, is who are the people in your life that you are modeling the way of Jesus to? Um, let me finish with a passage out of First Thessalonians, and I'll finish with this. In fact, why don't we have the worship team come on up right now? So that's our, it's a nice, subtle way of saying we're going to transition a couple songs of worship and close. First um, Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, I'll just read this. It says this. So Paul's writing to this church that we had just read about. Later, he would write a letter. That's what Paul oftentimes did, is he would either go back and visit or he would write a letter. In this case, he wrote a letter. This was a letter. This is what he wrote. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and our Father your work of faith, your labor of love, the steadfastness of hope. Uh, So faith, hope, and love, three things that Paul references here. In the Lord Jesus, again, Jesus is the center of this. It's not just some sort of vague notion of a concept or a construct of God, whatever that is, or it's not just some sort of ambiguous spirituality. It has a very, very fine, sharp point to it. It is Christ, Jesus. That's what Paul proclaimed. That's what our lives are about. That's what Paul's mission in life was all about, was about bringing people to Christ. It says in verse 4, For we know, beloved of God, that he has chosen you, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in the power of the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know what kind of people, what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you yourselves became imitators of us. There's that idea of of mentoring, mentorship, finding other people that have gone before you, that are committed to Jesus in their ways of life. And Paul's saying, you guys have become imitators of us. Um, And then he goes on to say, um, and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction and enjoy the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia. There's that picture. Paul saying, you followed me as I followed Jesus. And now because you have committed your heart and your ways to the headship, the lordship, the kingship of Jesus, now you are becoming this example to people all around the Roman Empire so that people know who you are because there is a sense where you have devoted yourself to this king. Now, that being said, why should any of us devote ourselves to this king? Simple answer is because we have a king that actually devoted himself to us. That's the gospel. We have a God that didn't abandon us in the midst of our rebellion and rejection and sin and obstinacy and defilement. He actually stepped into all of that, took all the consequences that all of that brings upon himself and in exchange has given us his life. We have a king that in no way rejects us, but has come in and taken upon himself 
everything that we deserve. And in exchange, he calls us, he invites us to trust him. That's what it means to give your life, give your heart to Jesus. The gospel is always about an invitation. I want to finish with that. To sing, to respond to God, to respond to that invitation, to trust him. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, to ask Christ to wash you, to cleanse you, knowing with great confidence he will wash you and cleanse you and accept you. He will not cast you away. A God that has done and endured all that he has on the cross will not now turn away from you. And if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, you would say with many, Jesus is Lord. You got to think through what does that look like in your life presently, right now. The decisions you're wading through, the future that you're thinking about constructing, what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord over relationships that you're navigating? What does it mean Jesus is Lord? So let me pray. Why don't we all stand and uh, we'll sing. How about this? We'll all stand, I'll pray, and then we'll sing. God, thank you for your love, and now we respond to that. So let's sing. If you're here this morning and you need prayer for anything that's going on, just come on in the front. We'd love to pray with you. I'll be in the front. We'll have some other leaders and community group leaders to be in the front to pray with you guys. So let's respond.